Uh, welcome to the second time we've recorded audio. We still don't know if this is a podcast or what we're doing, but we are trying to speak to you directly, dear listeners. I guess I'll just start by saying that it's been a really fucked up week. And part of the way that we're trying to process all of the information and, and also serve our readership is by taking questions. Uh, we set up a Google form and uh, people just kind of have been sending in all kinds of questions. Uh, the questions fall into a number of different buckets, I would say. Some of them are really straightforward questions about this this particular round of violence and, um, you know, what are the things that precipitated it and what's actually happening in Sheikh Jarrah. And we've actually published uh, an explainer that we're going to keep adding to on our website, um, jewishcurrents.org, uh, that you can find there. But a lot of the other questions were of a different nature. Um, I'd say the majority of them coming from Jews who are probably kind of identifying themselves as being in some way at the beginning of their process and thinking through what is going on in Israel-Palestine and what it actually has to do with them. And so we thought we might start just by talking a little bit about these questions um, that I would say are more sort of on the emotional end of things, even if some of them profess to ask for specific information. And yeah, like, let's let's just dive in. I guess I, guess I should also say um, I'm Arielle Angel, I'm the editor of Jewish Currents, and I'm here with uh, Mari Cohen and Josh Leifer, our assistant editors, and Jacob Putman, uh, the publisher of Jewish Currents. I think part of the the challenge is just how fully entangled what we call Judaism is with Zionism. I mean, the and the entanglement in many ways is sort of at the you know it it begins at the root. I mean, an entire half century of work. And plus was done to basically meld and blend and braid Judaism and Zionism together, of course, with its the sort of inaugural year being 1967, where American Jewish Zionist uh, political perspective became the hegemonic one, you know, at first slowly and then very quickly throughout the community. And I think part of what's difficult about the the position of someone that is both interested in Jewishness, but also uh, against apartheid and ethno-nationalism in Israel and anywhere, um, is that essentially almost all of the base relationships one might have with Jewishness have become eroded essentially to a point of non-existence. And I mean, it's, it's, I think there's that discomfort is, is a real recognition, I think, of the uh, uh, as Leonard Cohen put it, uh, the level to which we have decayed. Um, and I think, you know, Leonard Cohen, for instance, uh, essentially believed like many did, especially during the Balchuva movement, when lots of secular Jews became very religious, at least for a time, that one answer to this was to, was to embrace God, you know, and to become a religious Jew and to live a Torah led life in some uh, in some way, shape, or form, uh, and for secular Jews, the the religion, so to speak, um, for mainstream American Judaism has been Zionism. That Zionism is 
the I would say that Zionism is the largest and most powerful denomination, so to speak, of American Judaism. Um, that is less and less true, as I think uh, Jews of conscience see uh, Palestinian apartment buildings demolished by an army claiming to fight in its name. Um, but at the same time, I think we have to recognize like just how politically, but also sort of spiritually and intellectually intertwined the the liberal notions of statehood and nationalism um, and ethnic identity, how intertwined those things are with whatever we call Jewishness. And I think that that fact is part of why the question even feels hard, because even to uh, build an identity around, say, anti-Zionism, wherein one's Judea, you know, this is a common refrain among activists that, you know, not in my name, you know, this is not my Judaism. Um, but to build an identity around anti-Zionism already takes this hegemony for granted. It exists only in opposition to a, to a hegemony and political formation, which is much more powerful than its opposition. Jacob, when you were talking, the question that I just came, that, that came to my mind was like, okay, so we're basically, we've reached this point where it feels like at least certainly at the institutional level and like most people who identify um, as Jews in America are either tacitly supportive or actively supportive of um, authoritarian ethno-nationalism in Israel. And like, I think certainly in Jewish lefty Jewish activist spaces, it often felt like our goal as much as it was to like improve the lives of Palestinians and fighting against the occupation. The goal was also to like save Judaism from being taken over by like Zionism. But maybe that's a lost cause. Like I don't, I don't, I think that in some sense, like perhaps in order for the conversation to proceed, we have to give up the idea that it can be taken back in any meaningful way. Um, that, yeah, I just, I just don't know. I, and I also think that a politics that is focused on that as its primary goal and not around ending um, the forced transfer of Palestinians out of the land where they've lived for centuries. Like, why? Why would we focus on like saving Judaism when that doesn't seem right to me at this point? I, I mean, I, I I totally hear that. Um, I think what's difficult about it is that we are in a moment where we're perceiving openness, as we've said, you know? And so like, I, I don't know, like, I feel like the response, I mean, we can talk about how much we think this is true, but I think what a lot of us are noticing is that something is shifting, that obviously there's still Palestinian, uh, anti-Palestinian bias in American media. But I do think that, you know, even with like part of the innovation around identity politics and representational politics means that groups do feel obligated to include Palestinian voices. And like, you know, with the transfer of the Jerusalem Bureau at the New York Times to Patrick Kingsley, there have been changes in, for example, New York Times coverage that I think are meaningful. Like I mentioned, uh, using the term Palestinian citizens of Israel, which I don't remember seeing in the New York Times. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, or like, calling out um, kind of some of the mechanics of occupation in some of the articles in ways that I don't remember being the case. And so there is this, and I, I think that that is creating a, a an opportunity where people are open to learn things that they weren't learning before. And I just don't think we can like 
totally leave that on the table. Even as I feel like here we are, we're having this conversation about how we engage Jews, right? And the contrast, of course, with Palestinian suffering in this moment. I mean, some of the images coming out of Gaza have been, um, I mean, at the even just those images, not to mention all of the kind of mob violence, but just the the extreme um, bombing. Uh, you know, I mean, should we just be talking about that? Obviously, I mean, like, there's some way where it's like, yeah, we probably should, and yet, um, and yet, there does it doesn't seem like a, a not worthwhile cause to take this moment as an opening to to shift something. I mean, like, I think it would only be not worth doing if there was no hope that it could be done. And I think something that we're seeing in this moment is that it it might be able to be done under the right conditions. Josh, you were talking about um, like how kind of unsatisfying or like flat Hasbara feels right now in comparison to kind of like just the reality of what's going on. And I think that that's pretty important because most of the time Hasbara feels really compelling to people, you know? Yeah, I mean, I can the uh, the British Israeli academic Yair Wallach had a had a good tweet <laughs> about this where it was like the Israel he said that the Israeli respites res, Israeli rights response to this has has vacillated between um, 1948 didn't happen this kind of denialism about the Nakba and what Zionism has entailed for Palestinians and then also a threat that like and we're about and like if they don't stop we're going to do it again to them and I, I think that in a way that like those two currents still run through the American Jewish Hasbara response to this as well, which is like a denial about the reality of refusal to view Jews as oppressors in Israel rather than as victims, while at the same time threatening like extreme um, violence. Um, oh yeah, and just I know that I was using the term Hasbara. Hasbara literally in Hebrew means um, explanation, um, uh, but it's the term that kind of is professional Israel advocates use um, to uh, explain what to international audiences and the rest of the world what Israel is doing, but it's kind of generally means like whitewashing or justifying um, like the Israeli army's violence. Um, yeah, I don't think I, it's clear. I mean, I, I I couldn't tell you who like the primary um, ad like respectable Israel advocate is even right now in like the U.S. press, which I think is pretty remarkable. Like, it's not Brett Stevens. I think there are people who like Barry Weiss, but I don't think people have found, found her the difficult burdens of sovereignty argument um, compelling when she basically said that part of having a Jewish state is periodically carrying out extreme acts of violence against Palestinians. Um, and that's telling, and I, I, so I see what you're saying, Ariel, about there, there being an opening, but I just don't know what becomes, I, I guess I don't know what becomes of that opening. I think it might be helpful to give a little sense, a little context to you about where Jewish politics are exactly at this moment um, to sort of understand this stuff. There's a statistic that often goes around that's like 95% of Jews are Zionists. Um, we have a good piece that we published by Caroline Morganti last fall that I encourage people to check out, but it sort of um, talks about the ways in which that statistic itself um, is 
pretty problematic. There was never, that actually is not a representative sample um, study. And actually there's, it's really hard to have accurate data about where American Jews are on Israel because a lot of the studies don't ask questions. Many studies don't ask people if they're Zionist, partly because there's a lot of confusion about what the term Zionism means between a lot of different people. Um, But I also like, you know, very few studies even ask what kind of, you know, whether people want there to be a Jewish state versus, you know, a Jewish state that's a democracy versus if they have to choose between one, you know, or like what kind of solution they ultimately want. A lot of, instead, it's more common for there to be answer questions that are about like, you know, what's your emotional attachment to Israel, which is complicated because you can, you know, some of the people who end up, end up becoming some of the bigger critics of Israel are people who have spent time or have become anti-Zionist or people who have spent time there and might actually be more emotionally attached. And so in some ways it's kind of strategic because, you know, a lot of these more uh, mainstream Jewish organizations that run these surveys, they don't, they ask questions that in some ways I think are more palatable to what they're looking for. That said, I mean, we do have data from these questions and it is undeniable that a large majority of American Jews either feel some sort of connection, have some level of political support for Israel. Um, And so I think also, like, oftentimes there's this move by left activists, left Jewish activists to be like, hey, you know, Zionism isn't Judaism. We have to separate them. Lots of Jews aren't Zionists. And obviously Zionism and Judaism are different. And lots of Jews are Zionists. And in fact, most American Jews um, probably are Zionists. Um, and But like at the same time, you do see sort of a shift, especially starting with younger people now, like people in the age of 18 to 29. It is There is a pretty striking change in, you know, kind of levels of emotional attachment to Israel or like support for politics over time. So actually like the big uh, Pew survey for um, of American Jews came out just... Oh my God, earlier this week was that this week. It's been a very Tuesday. long week. Yeah. Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. So it came out on Tuesday. Um, and there's they did ask, you know, so they didn't, you know, the questions about Israel, they don't ask necessarily a lot of really ex- explicit political questions, but there is this question about, you know, percent of Jews who say they're emotionally attached to Israel. And, you know, so overall for these, you know, the Jewish people who are sampled by Pew, you've got 58% are either very or somewhat attached to Israel, and 41% are not too or not at all attached to Israel. That's that's obviously true, but I think what the data does show again and again is that American Jews are low information, and that the more you ask about what they actually know, they don't know that much about what's actually going on. And, and so, like, you know, especially we learned in the Pew study about BDS, for example, like how you know, I I think something like 40 something percent just doesn't even, has never even heard of it, doesn't even know what it is. So 10% of Jews support BDS, which I think is actually, as I said, a large number, um, all things considered. I mean, especially considering the amount of misinformation about what it even is. But I, I guess what I would say is just as many people as support it have never even heard of it, which really speaks to the fact that Jews are low information. Um, and so 
we don't actually like, again, it just speaks to that opportunity. Like we are, even those people who are pro-Israel, quote unquote, who have a feeling of like, there should be, I mean, look at the questions that we got. We got all these questions that are like, I know what's happening with the Palestinians is wrong. I still think there should be a Jewish state, you know, what do I do with that? And I think that that's probably where like a, a much larger percentage of American Jews or diaspora Jews it, it, I hard to say diaspora Jews actually, but just let's say American Jews, um, that that's probably where a lot more of them are than we think that their Zionism is, is sort of, um, ambient on some level and not necessarily, uh, focused, uh, laser focused, if you will. And just to quickly throw in, just to quickly, uh, flesh out those stats that Ariel is talking about, cause I've got the PDF in front of me. So for BDS, we've got 10% who, support it. And then, but that's not like, as opposed to 90% who oppose it, it's 10% support it, 43% oppose it. And then if, um, the rest, you know, I think that's a remaining, like, you know, 46 or something like that percent haven't heard anything about it, or it's like 43% haven't heard anything about it. So in some ways, like if you take people who support it, plus people who, or people who haven't heard about BDS, that's actually a majority of, of Jews. So it's kind of interesting, um, since this has been such a major polarizing point in Jewish politics for so long, BDS being the boycott, divestment, sanctions uh, movement um, against Israel um, as like a kind of nonviolent human rights protest strategy. Well, I was going to say, I just think it's important for us to, to, I mean, I think we should discuss what the stakes of Jewish public opinion are, because, I mean, part of what part is part of what is at issue is the question of what effect does Jewish support, whatever that means of Israel, what effect that has on Palestinians and others under the power who are uh, oppressed by the Israeli government and including uh, various people inside Israel with or without Israeli citizenship. Um, And I think that the question that that question of what the stakes are in terms of American Jewish public opinion matters because if if one thinks the relationship is very strong, then changing Jewish po- political support for Israel really matters. If, but on the other hand, I, I do wonder whether there is you know I mean Israel itself. When I was at summer camp, you know uh, we had this big picture of Herzl, uh, Theodore Herzl, you know the sort of putative founder of Zionism, um, on the wall, and we all knew the phrase, you know, in Kirtzu, you know, if you will it, uh, and the other half of the phrase is, then it is no dream, which is his his perhaps most famous saying. And there's this sense within the sort of, within Zionist ideology that Jews, by creating Israel, grabbed a hold of our communal fate and established this thing for ourselves, so we could finally be safe or, or something. Um, the, the trouble is, of course, is that the actual history is not, that's not what happened. I mean, Israel was not created because of, uh, solely because of the efforts of Jews or a sudden Jewish, um, uniquely Jewish desire for a national home or, or anything like that. It was part of an entire wave of small nation national movements from Greece and elsewhere uh, that Herzl himself was directly uh, engaged in, in in dialogue and was taking inspiration from, and the fact that the the entire creation of the state was convenient eventually because of the retraction of the British mandate. I mean, there was like an entire geolo- geopolitical context that made the creation of Israel possible. That has much more to do with global trends in uh, in the way politics were happening then and are happening now than it does with any kind of Jewish self empowerment. And I think to a degree. The, the idea that American Jewish political feelings about Israel-Palestine are a determining factor actually follows straight in line with this kind of um, fantasy of Jewish power. 
a fantasy of, of sort of Jewish self-determination as if, as if we actually have our own fates in our hands, when in fact what Israel really is is a colonial outpost for American empire. And it will remain that whether or not Jews like it, which is, I mean, it's part of why Bibi Netanyahu has been so successful in building relationships with other authoritarian ethno-nationalist rulers from India, Hungary, uh, Brazil, and onwards, is that this has much this has much to do with a kind of global realignment in, in the far right than it does, I think, with any kind of Jewish communal um, expression or Jewish anything. And so I think you know, that to me, it troubles It troubles what the stakes are, really. Because, I mean, for me as a Jewish person in the United States, I care very much about wh- what Jews think and how Jews feel because that's the community in which I live. Um, but I do feel concerned that, that that might be actually what is at stake with this, whether or not I feel comfortable in a, in a political context here, not whether we can stop the mass murder and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians by changing Jews' minds. I mean, I want to take two steps back just because one to respond to Mari and then also to, to respond to what you just said, Jacob. But I mean, I think, I think, well, maybe I'll reverse the order. I mean, I think, Jacob, what, I mean, what we're going, what we're circling around is what was the fundamental unanswered question of, if, of like, of what, if not now, was trying to argue that American Jewish support for the occupation was in fact a pillar of how the occupation was sustained. And I think one of the things that we're, that, that we are seeing now, and, I, and it is remarkable and is worth mentioning is that. The discourse does feel to have shifted in some way, uh, in the better way. It's one of the things where you can say, like, people, there is, there are more Palestinian voices on TV. There are more Palestinians writing for the Times than there were before. There is, there is a general sense of an, a better understanding of the Palestinian narrative. And at the same time, things are worse in Israel. There's way less. There are no, you know, 2014 happened at the end of like a round of attempted peace negotiations, and obviously there was a huge problem with. Um, the the Oslo peace paradigm, but there at least was like some theoretical, like um, the Israeli government had some kind of lip service to ending the occupation. But seven years later, like the occupation is is permanent and ex- the paradigm isn't. We're in a paradigm where Israeli government is contemplating annexation. Annexation seems much more like of a likely outcome than a than a than a final status like partition agreement. Um, and so. You know, that certainly tests the hypothesis that if they get the discourse right in America, the policies will get better in Israel-Palestine. And it, it seems like there's a huge um, disjuncture there. But the other thing that um, what was striking to me when Mari was talking is that when I was in college I and working on Palestine solidarity stuff and, and, and embroiled in a very, and what ended up being a, near, a BDS resolution that nearly failed, I felt, and this was also at the same time that the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests happened. I thought at the time that what was going to happen was that American Jews were going to end up like beleaguered white grievance white Americans um, on the issue of Israel-Palestine. But what I think has been interesting is that because the most young American Jews are actually disaffiliated from institutions that would have otherwise formed them politically in like a Zionist fashion, they actually are much more like white liberals um, than, than they are like, say, Orthodox Jews who do have an ideological and religious formation to orient them towards specific policies. And so what I do think you are seeing in like the, what is it, the 18 to 35 demographic or whatever, like that has lived their lives in the twilight of the major Jewish institutions that probably don't have very much connection that are majority unaffiliated, maybe even like a huge segment of Jews of no religion is that they are looking at this 
the way a lot that same demographic that was overwhelmingly supportive of Bernie Sanders and that is overwhelmingly supportive of Black Lives Matter views it, which is like as a clear situation of like oppression. Yeah. I mean, I think like if there's any evidence of like how interconnected, you know, how, they're always talking about how interconnected certain struggles are, and particularly the Black and Palestinian struggle, I think we are seeing to an extent uh, the effect of like being acculturated to certain kinds of politics during Black Lives Matter and now having those be operative, you know, in, uh, in, in this context. Uh, but I, there's like so many things I want to respond to, Josh, uh, in, in what you just said. The question of whether we can do anything in Israel is a really strong question, but it, it's like if we are asking that question, there's almost, you can say that almost about anything at this point. I mean, like Israel is on a track. Josh, you and I were talking about how like the the mainstream public opinion in Israel has has kind of laid a, a groundwork ideologically for uh, mass expulsion for another Nakba and for the for the transfer of, you know, Palestinian citizens of Israel out of Israel. Um, and it's very hard to see. I mean, like if you look at the numbers of of the ways that younger Israelis are being introduced into politics and even the way that older Israelis might be changing their politics. I mean, peace spaces are, are solely old people at this point for the most part over overwhelmingly. And, and they're extremely small. So like this question of like, can we do anything to stop what's going on on the ground? You might as well say that about almost anything. Um, there really isn't a lot. I mean, really, I mean, I, I hate to be hopeless, but you know, there isn't like, I don't think anyone could give you like a really good answer. Cause like, there's nothing that's happening on the ground. That's actually making any difference. The only thing that's going to make a difference is Palestinian resistance on a mass scale. And I think we're seeing that in this. What do you mean? You might as well. Well, I just mean, if you're asking like, can Americans do anything or can American Jews, does it, does American Jewish opinion matter in terms of what's going on in Israel? I think that there are very few things that matter actually. Like, and, and I think one of those things is Palestinian resistance. And like, barring that, I don't know. I mean, there's like a question of, is there anything anyone can do, you know? And I'm not sure that there's a really good answer. Like the tracks are very set in certain ways. So that said, I don't think it's wrong to focus on American Jewish, uh, public opinion on some level, because I don't think it's only about American Jewish public opinion. I think like, you know, for example, I think all of us were brought into, for example, the 2014 movement around Jewish American politics in relationship to Israel-Palestine. One of the results of that is this magazine. And I think that this magazine has a role to play, even in influencing American foreign policy. Uh, you know, like I think that there are people, I, I think we know that there are people, you know, I don't want to overestimate things, but within American government, I mean, uh, Rashida Tlaib from the floor of the house, uh, quoted from Peter's essay published in Jewish currents earlier this week. Um, and it's not just, you know, the squad or whatever, you know, you have people in the foreign policy establishment who, you know, know of us and read us. I'm not trying to overinflate our importance in this. I think it's just one example of the way in which a certain movement in Jewish politics brought about something that's sort of useful more broadly in broader politics. Um, and, and again, I'm like, I really don't mean to overstate our influence in particular, but just to say that like, we are particularly the results of those politics, even as we want to like distance ourselves from them now, because they seem so much not the point. And yet like, 
I think the, I think as a lot of people have pointed out the kind of the river only flows one way. Like once you start going down this path of like uncovering what's actually going on on the ground in Israel, Palestine, you don't, you don't, you kind of don't revert. Like if you're being open and honest to what's going on, I think we see that in Peter's trajectory. And I think it gives other people permission and not just Jews. I think it gives a lot of Americans permission to, to change their minds or to challenge, uh, assumptions that they've held. And, you know, Americans, America gives three point, I mean, (laughs) billions and billions of dollars to Israel. Uh, and that matters. And, and if we believe that that matters, then we have to believe that the work that we do in American public opinion matters and that Jewish American public opinion matters to that um, equation. And particularly in terms of like, let's just say it like media, you know, if you look at uh, the past and how often Jewish voices are published on Israel, Palestine, as opposed to Palestinians, I mean, we can put, if, if we have like episode notes, <laughs> we can put episode, you know, we can put a link to the 972 piece that actually just lays out. It's kind of like a thousand to zero in this regard, um, in all of the major outlets, even progressive ones. So, yeah. There's multiple levels, right? It's like, to what extent can the Jewish left influence the Jewish mainstream community writ large? To what extent does the Jewish mainstream community influence American politics? And to what extent can American politics live, influence Israel? And you can get into debates on like every single level in that rung, um, or like every single point of connection there. And I, but I do think it is true that the section of the Jewish community that actually is a sort of powerful white right-wing force on Israel might be actually a smaller section of the Jewish community or not representative. And it's still very powerful and well-funded and makes, I think, a real impact on politics here. I mean, for example, if like someone like Jamal Bowman, um, congressman, representing the Bronx, you know, signs on to the McCollum bill to, you know, restrict funding to Israel from being used for detaining, um, you know, Palestinian children in occupied territories and for, you know, uh, destroying Palestinian homes and annexing the West Bank. Um, Bowman's getting major pushback on that in his district in the Bronx, and he's getting pushback from uh, rabbis and Jewish organizations and particularly, um, I think it's like Orthodox rabbis there, but that's, they're organized and they, you know, they're able to like, they're the ones who are mounting the attack. Um, also, I mean, if you even think about like some of the stuff that goes on on college campuses, the ways in which, you know, there's like pretty severe, often harassment of Palestinian students. Um, a lot of those right-wing groups like stand with us, you know, camera, like those are Jewish groups that are supported by Jewish donors and sometimes, you know, directly from federations and like those things do impact people's lives. And so then there is this question. It's like people who are, you know, these groups and funders and donors that are already so right wing, we can't, we're not going to change their minds necessarily or influence them. You know, can we shift the space of discourse so that they're less powerful or that they're less authoritative about necessarily representing Jewish interests. I mean, maybe that's kind of the game and the question that is all about the if not now question. But I think that's sort of the arena in which we're thinking about this. But I I guess like also when people say, you know, it's not just Jews, it's Christian Zionists. I think that's important. And I think it is just true that if, you know, if Jews weren't here to support Israel, I think, you know, 
Jacob's right that it has a major dependence on what America's strategic interests are in the region. And it's not really that much about Jews and that the Christian Zionists would give Israel plenty of support. And I think that's all true. And I think it's a lot of Jews that are powerful and provide a lot of the support for Israel and a lot of the rhetorical justification for it. You heard it here, folks. Yeah, sorry. We just have to reckon with it. It's just true. It's funny to me. It's funny to me that 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 phrase is has become controversial because J.J. Goldberg, who is the editor of The Forward, uh, wrote a book that was published like 1999 called Jewish Power. It's actually a really interesting book. I think anyone who's interested in Jewish American politics should read it because it's like the last time anyone ever wrote a panoramic view of what like Jewish organizations are doing on Capitol Hill and structuring like the political, um, like the terrain on Israel-Palestine. His remarkable anecdotes about like APAC, um, you know, making Yitzhak Rabin's life difficult. That, like, at first, you know, they were there was this whole deferential relationship to the Israeli government, but then it really turned out that like Likud and like rightward people were calling the shots in American Jewish institutions. Anyway, it's a great book, but like, it's funny to me that that book was like published by a, a regular publisher and was like actually it's actually quite a good book with the title Jewish Power. But now somehow like that's become a dog whistle rather than like no, we built these institutions as you know. I think Ariel, I think we think we I had this sentence in the response also where like. The post-war Jewish American Jewish community built these institutions to wield its power. Um, it's just that now they've become, you know, they've enlisted themselves in the defense of the Israeli state and not just of the state, but of a territorial maximalist position. Um, and I think that, like, in some ways, like, it doesn't, they have been operating, they, it's not that they lost their constituency. I mean, the argument that J, that Goldberg has in the Jewish power book, I think is actually worth listening to because he argues that they basically never had a constituency, that American Jews have never been primarily activated as Jews on this issue, except for in a few instances. I mean, there are, we can think about them. Um, and that they've largely operated with most American Jews having no idea what they're doing. That's like how he opens the book, actually, that most of these organizations and most of the people who staff them would be utterly unknown to American Jews. And that was 30 years ago at this point. Well, so maybe um, we should we should move on to like looking at some of the questions that we got. I mean, since we've already been at it for uh, a bit, uh, I I mean, look, to a certain extent, just to reiterate, we're going to be answering some of these questions, particularly the more concrete ones um, in the next, you know, week or a couple weeks or however long this goes on, um, on our website. And so you can keep checking back. We'll keep updating. Uh, I think, as I said, some of what our intention here is to answer, particularly the questions that we can answer as a group of Jews, uh, which have to do with some of the um, processing and like emotional side of this. Um, I think one question that we've gotten a lot, and you guys can tell me if this isn't like the first place that you want to go, we can go somewhere else. Um, is is about how to talk to the people in your life who are um you know who have who have been repeating the same lines on this for quite a long time and where those lines come from very specific sources i think a lot of people that are writing to us and a lot of people that i'm just talking to in my everyday life sort of have the sense that this is wrong but whenever they get mired in uh, a discussion they feel like they're not prepared to have the conversation. That's one side of it. Um, and, you know, and so that manifests in a lot of asking for resources, but it's a very, very complex, uh, issue when you're actually like dealing, 
sorry, let me backtrack on that. It has been sold as a very complex issue uh, in terms of the morality of it. And actually, it's not that complex morally um, because of the power imbalance. Um, so I'll just say that right right now. But there also is a way in which, um, in which, you know, it took me almost a decade to learn the things that I know about Israel-Palestine in order to be able to have a competent conversation with, um, with people who are sort of armed with the, the party line. Um, and so I guess one of those questions is sort of like, what, what does it mean to kind of be prepared or to, to start down the path of being able to have those conversations? And I think another one of those, another, like a subset of that question is really, how do I talk to my family? Or like, how do I talk to my cousins in Israel? Or how do I talk to the people who are closest to me? So I thought I would sort of open that up a bit in terms of, you know, our personal experiences with that. And um, yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like kind of maybe a question that's embedded in there too, is like, what role do like emotions and, you know, if we're going to talk about emotional attachment to Israel and also a term that people throw out a lot is in this topic is intergenerational trauma. Um, this idea that, you know, because people feel because like, you know, there was this trauma of the Holocaust and also, you know, obviously before that, you know, rampant European anti-Semitism, um, you know, obviously other histories of anti-Semitism, uh, then also like sort of the um, Mizrahi and Sephardi history of anti-Semitism, Mizrahi Jewish expulsion from various countries, basically, you know, has resulted in this sort of like hardening of, you know, sense of Jewish victimhood and fear that really pervades a lot of the conversations about this. And, you know, maybe there's, and then I think there's arguments about, you know, how much to talk about that or like, you know, off, what does it mean when you're arguing with somebody in their sense of Jewish victimhood or like sense in which they are under threat is actually not a reality based in what they're actually facing at the moment, you know, like to what extent do we like humor those sorts of positions? But I do think it's something we have to talk about because I think that comes up for a lot of people. And it definitely comes up when I talk to my family and the arguments become very emotional. So I think there's a big role. I certainly don't think we should downplay Jewish trauma. Like, you know, I mean, my grandparents are survivors of Auschwitz. I, I don't think that we need to, I, I mean, I think we talk about it in a very clinical way as like um, an emotion to be managed or something like, but, you know, it is also real and there um, and a fact of, of all of this, um, you know, so I just, which is just to say, like, I don't think we have to minimize historical Jewish suffering or any present day anti-Semitism in order to um, look at the situation in Israel-Palestine and say what is happening there is wrong. Um, but that is almost like slightly to the side of the question in my mind. I mean, I feel con conflicted and complicated about this in part because I, I, I think that there's a way that like answering this question properly requires disambiguating different kinds of Jewish stories. Um, you know, and for every story of Auschwitz survivors, there are stories like, you know, my family, which arrived in the United States before the Holocaust. And I think there's something probably wrong with like people in my family claiming the Holocaust as a source of historical trauma as a kind of like post memory that they didn't experience, but like the broader community with which they identify experience. And so it's mediated through that communal attachment. Like, I don't think that that, and I think, I think roughly American Jews, there are, uh, Many American 
many American Jews are not the descendants of um, Holocaust survivors. And so their relationship to what happened is, is also mediated. And I do think it is a question to what extent um, like that particular instance of Jewish trauma can justify a refusal to look at what's happening like in Israel-Palestine. I mean, I also think it is important to say that like the Holocaust is not the sole Jewish trauma of Jewish history. That like, you know, there is a, there are um, many other events, you know, Kishinev, the pogrom, like the, you know, the Inquisition, we can like rattle them off. You learn them in school. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think part of, I think Zionism, I think it's very hard to argue against Zionism when your primary in way of entry into thinking about Jewish history is what the Jewish historian, the great Jewish historian, Salo Baron called the lachrymose um, uh, view of Jewish history, that it's suffering all the way down. That kind of, uh, or to use another term that, the, that I think I've seen in, in Shal, the scholar Shaul McGee's writing, that like this kind of Judeo-pessimist view that looks at Jewish history as like solely the experience of oppression. Um, I think that that necessarily feeds into, or not necessarily, but it, in, at least experientially in our current world, the view of Jewish history in that way ends up very quickly being justification for like violent nationalism because we, because it's, it's an imperative to defend oneself. I think it's really hard to argue your way to a different point if that's, if that view of history is what you're working with. But if someone already has that view of history, how do you talk to them? I mean, I think, sorry, go ahead. Maria. Well, yeah, I guess I was going to say a version of the same thing, Mari, which is, which is basically, you know, I think putting what Josh is saying into a constructive way, instead of just being like, instead of destroying our premise, which is actually trying to help people talk to people, talk to their families and have conversations is to say that like some one way of doing that might be to change the conversation a bit, um, you know, to, to like shift the terms of the conversation. Now, how to change the channel from Holocaust, I think is really, that's really hard to do. Um, you know, I, I think you're undoing a lot. I, I guess like, you know, as you all know, cause we've talked about it. I think, I don't think it's possible to do any of this work, uh, like once and for all. I think that basically the, the number one, I, I, I so I'll just share that I've actually been quite successful in moving my family over time. Um, my mother and my grandmother in particular, um, who are very staunch Zionists. And I, I, I say are, I don't think that they have changed their identity as Zionists, but they, um, pretty much agree with almost everything that I'm saying at this point, which is interesting. And I don't really know exactly how they're reconciling that. Um, but what I will say is that it really didn't start that way. I mean, we were really opposed. And in 2014, I really felt like maybe I, I mean, I didn't know where my relationship with them was going to go. Um, and it has taken eight years of sustained hand-to-hand -hand combat. <laughs> um, and I think that like the number one, um, for me at least, and I, I really don't know what people what people's individual situations are with their families and like the tolerance for conflict in every individual family and how destructive certain kinds of behavior is. So it's not one size fits all, but I will say that for me, the number one 
um, thing that has made me, and I, there's actually a few relationships and also relationships with cousins of mine who are actually religious Zionists, um, that have been very fruitful is I am always willing to engage in the argument. There is never a moment where I'm like, no, I'm not going to have this argument or it's not worth it. I basically am bringing the argument all the time. I, and I, and I, it has been, I mean, like there's a way in which also like I kind of enjoy it or, you know, I mean, it's not fun actually. It's, it can be really exhausting and I'm crying and I've, I've been up all night with my cousins in Tel Aviv, literally crying and everybody's yelling. And, um, but I, I think that in order to do any of this work, you have to be willing to engage and to engage again and again and again. And I do think that, um, to a certain extent, it has been helpful for me to educate myself on the issue in order to respond and in order to be able to kind of shift. I mean, I think in Jewish currents, when we feel like a certain kind of conversation is getting stale, we try to look for the intervention, the way to kind of shift the ground in which the conversation has, is being had on. And I think having more information allows you to do that more effectively. I think that a lot of people who are writing to us are asking, essentially, how do I become educated on this. I don't even know where to look. And I think that that is um, a valid question because it takes a long time. I think that to a certain extent, you just start, um, you know, and you have to follow your instincts somewhat. Um, and, and if you just keep that interest alive and you nurture it, something will happen. Like you will be changed uh, in, in time. Um, it's not, it is hard to figure out where to start, but you find a few sources that feel right to you and you start reading them, you know, um, on a regular basis. That's one way. So I guess like part of the anxiety I think comes from like, especially in the questions that we've received, I think some of the anxiety I think comes from the idea of like, it has to be once and for all, like we have to find, you know, the best source to start with, or we have to, you know, we have to have like the conversation with our moms that's going to like change, change things. And I think you just have to be willing to do this work over a long period of time. Yeah, it never ends. I mean, I, 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 I second that. I, I don't know. I don't want to blow up my family spot in too many ways. I, I would say that hand-to-hand combat also would in some ways describe what has happened over the last years in and my, you know, my parents, I think, have changed their politics in a really substantial way. In part, I would say, I will say that, and I think, Ariel, what you said about information is really crucial because I think back to when I was in college and was doing more activist stuff, and they were not very receptive, but they're much more receptive to to the journalistic work, and they're willing to read, and they've been willing to engage. And over time, you know, engaging them in a regular, sustained way about what is actually happening there has moved them from in some ways like a kind of knee-jerk pro-Israel position to like you know being enthusiastic about Gibat Chaviva which is a place in Israel that does like coexistence work between Israelis and Palestinians it doesn't mean that like their political transformation is over or that it that's the terminus but like that is a very substantial shift in my uh lifetime I mean I also think it depends on who you're talking with like the conversations with my friend, with friends and family in Israel look very, are very different and much harder because there the conversation is not about getting them to recognize the facts, but is about, um, 
much more fundamental questions about yeah like, i agree like what does it mean to live in a country that is not an ethno state I, I agree with that josh my conversations <laughs> with my family in israel are, are much much harder but i also think that i've had some movement over time i think i mean i can offer a slightly different experience which is i'm not sure if my very long campaign to change family minds has worked i don't know mom if you're listening to this let me know if you think it's worked. But I, I think like, I don't know, I think in some ways, I've had to sort of step back and think that maybe constant engagement on this isn't, I, I sometimes I almost wonder if it's produced the opposite effect in which I've almost created more stubbornness. I mean, okay, it depends who you're talking about. I think that there's certain friends, certain family where I have been able to make some headway in our conversations. But I think like, in some ways, like, it's like, you know, my parents were never my family was never right-wing Zionists. They were always, you know, kind of liberal anti-Nanyahu Zionists. And so it, it, but at the same time, there was this pretty strong, you know, just, it was, it wasn't really even like it had to be in, instilled in me because it was just like, you know, the atmosphere was so clearly Zionist and pro-Israel that it wasn't like, you know, we're going to do a specific program of teaching you this sort of thing. It's just like, oh yeah, this is what we are. Um, and so, but in some ways I wonder if by so consistently, you know, coming in with dissent and also by perhaps often kind of being emotional and in my dissent, because it's, it's emotional for me to like fight with people close to me about this. Um, I wonder if I've almost in some ways produced resistant, more resistance um, in response than I even would have had before, because there's defensiveness, there's emotions, there are, there is a lot of this Judeo pessimism around like, you know, but we need to have a state. What else are we going to do? And I don't know, sometimes I think I'm getting somewhere and that I'm, you know, changing minds and making headway and bringing around facts. And then we kind of end up back at that place in the conversation again. At the same time, I mean, my family, I work here and my family reads my work and they read Jewish Kurds and they don't always agree, but they're reading it because I'm here. Um, and, you know, they're reading Peter's pieces um, and sometimes messaging me about them. So I, but I also, I, I do kind of wonder, like, maybe I'm not the right person to talk to my mom about this. Like maybe things are going to have to change in the broader community and the broader, you know, kind of like cultural sphere in the broader liberal democratic sphere. And then ultimately like there's going to, you know, that's going to sort of move my family along, um, you know, move my mom along. But like, I'm, I, if I keep kind of going in and just like really emotionally or just like, you know, talking about it, it might just end up producing more emotional defensiveness. So I do think part of this whole thing is you have to understand when when you've lost and i think also sometimes i mean ariel's strategy of like you know just always engaging i think sounds like it works has worked really well i think for me sometimes it helps me to strategically not engage because i think that like we have to i have to preserve the relationship and also like you know there's like a certain amount of like i think goodwill and understanding that i like if i sometimes choose not to engage i think that like in some ways that's really appreciated and can potentially like you know buy me more listening next time around. So, I mean, it's hard. Like, I don't know, like sometimes you're the best people to talk to your own family and sometimes maybe you're not the best people to talk to your own family. Um, but then it's hard because then you have to deal with the fact that you might be really divided from your family on something that you really care about and that you feel really have really strong moral feelings about. So. Yeah. I mean, I would also, I would also just say like hand to hand combat is like when I use that term, it like implies a lot of aggression. And in my, in the case of my family and because of how we actually communicate with each other, I would say that that's accurate. Um, as my husband likes to say, they just keep the hostility at 11. That's just like a kind of normal way of 
engaging. Um, but I would also say that there is a way to continue to engage if you can manage it. That is not that. Like I've also seen sort of like the way my husband engages around this issue and he's, you know, this isn't his issue, but he knows a lot about it. And he ha- he ends up in arguments with me very frequently because we're often together. And I think, you know, he's a much sort of calmer presence. He asks a lot of questions, but he's still engaging. He's still like in, in the work of the conversation without it necessarily having to be sort of like high dramatics. Um, and so I guess I just wanted to say that, that, that like there is also a mode that is available that's about asking questions and listening, but that also like redirects some of the energy in the conversation elsewhere. Um, so I just wanted to say that. Jacob, you, you've been a little quiet. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on this. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, to a degree, yes and no. I mean, I, in, in terms of talking to my family, I mean, my family by and large, uh, hello, mom, if you're listening to this, uh, I mean, they're very political, um, in the sense that they're sort of like, I think my mom's Twitter bio says unapologetic liberal, um, which in the context of High Point, North Carolina is a bolder statement than it might be here in Brooklyn. Um, they're the only house in our neighborhood with like a Black Lives Matter sign, which my mom put up on a tree in our front yard, like 10 feet up so that kids wouldn't yank it off. Um, and I don't really argue with them about this. I mean, they, by and large, I, I was further to the right than them on this issue for many, many years. I mean, I, I grew up going to a summer camp where, you know, uh, one year for Color War, uh, the four teams were named after Israeli par- paramilitary groups. And the team that won was representing Lehi. Uh, the racist far right group, um, and they won. Um, we teach. We teach life. Yeah, we teach life. They teach hate. Yeah, exactly. Of course, we had no idea what lucky was about. It was just like a name, right? And people knew it meant like light or something. So the plaque that won was a painting of like a candle. It, it, it was just totally disentangled from like the actual politics, like that that were being taught. And so I remember actually I was living in Israel, um, a, a bit after Castled had occurred. Uh, and I was arguing with my parents saying that, like, look, you know, Israel has to do what it has to do. You know, my dad was like, shouldn't someone like impose some order over there? And I was just like, that is not an American's place. <laughs> like the most, I mean, I was just like an absolute parody of like a Hasbara deranged um, young man. Um, so, I mean, I've spent, I, I also, some people listening might know I've worked for J Street for a number of years. I mean, I when I lived in Israel, I had the the catastrophic experience many have for a young uh, right-wing pro-Israel person, which is that you actually meet Palestinians, um, which will do a big number on your brain um, in your heart. And like many people, I ended up in J Street U with other confused and angry uh, early 20-somethings. Um, and so when I worked there, basically what I did is I sat on the phone, um, doing one-on-ones with people who had had some kind of experience, um, that had made them question what they had been taught. And I would spend about an hour on the phone with someone, uh, someone different five times a day, five days a week. And I did that for three years. Um, and it did not feel like hand-to-hand combat though there were some very combative individuals that I spoke to. What it felt like ultimately was that the only thing I ever saw change anyone was uh, a traumatic experience. Um, like the only people I saw really move and then I'm including myself. Um, I mean, it, the thing that changed me was actually going to Bethlehem 
and seeing the inside of the wall and thinking to myself, the inside of this wall looks like the inside of a prison cell, you know, cause it has like scratchings on it, you know, uh, the graffiti. And I remember seeing the guard towers and seeing that it, Palestinians had painted over the guard towers somehow though. They're like 30, 40 feet high because they're tented. So you can never tell if someone's looking down at, at you. And so they'd felt the need to paint them over to know that no one was in there, though no one had been in those towers since the second intifada. And it, I, I remember going home that day, this was sometime in the spring of 2009. And just, it was the first night in my entire life that I did not sleep. And my girlfriend at the time asked me, she was like, what's wrong? And, and I said to her, I, I don't know. <laughs> I literally like, what was happening to me, I literally did not have words to describe what was occurring in my brain. And every person I know from organizing of the thousands of individuals I've had one-on-one -on -one conversations with over the years, I can barely think of anyone that changed deeply on this issue without something like that happening, without losing at least a night of sleep, some fucked up thing that they saw. And I think it's not always like they went to Palestine or whatever. It's just that something, something got to them eventually. And, and I think it's like manufacturing those experiences. That's uh, probably too loaded a term. I mean, creating opportunities, I should say, for those experiences is the business of like encounter and the many, many trips that take people into the West Bank and elsewhere to sort of show them the bare fact of facts of the occupation. And I think that works really important. Um, I also think that you know, it just, the fact that someone needs to often needs to literally stand in the ruins of the market in Hebron, you know, that is a, a former marketplace for Palestinians now filled with razor wire, literally like a giant, imagine a, a road of razor wire. Um, the fact that people need to see something like that in order to sort of shake off a lot of the lies that have been told to them, I think speaks how deeply ingrained this is. And I just, I can't think of anyone I've convinced aside from telling, just describing those things. I can't think of anyone I've convinced by force of argument. The, the, the razor wire is the argument. I, I do just want to push back against that a little bit. I mean, first of all, I, I agree with you in a certain kind of sense that like, it's sort of, it is like an emotional process and there's no way to sort of just engineer it to a certain extent. I do think that like, the model of like, you have to be confronted with something very directly is obviously not necessarily, well, first of all, it's really expensive. Like we'd have to do it, you know, like the, the left would have to manufacture something akin to birthright for Americans, not just American Jews to be able to see the occupation. Like it would cost, you know, an insane amount of money. It's just like the slowest organizing ever. Um, I think that like the questions about imagery in this, in this context and how much they move people, like in the same way that like the video of George Floyd's police murder does something. I think like we're, we're like confronting that now. Cause I think for a very long time, there was a way in which those images were not really being processed the same way that other images were being processed. Um, I mean, based on racism, based on, um, just like a sort of keeping them at arm's length. Uh, but I do think that, that those moments that you're talking about can come out of a lot of different things. So like, for example, I, I remember talking to someone that I met at a dinner party who, um, was actually 
and, you know, Orthodox raised in the Orthodox community. And she said, for me, it was sort of, I, I came across a line in an article that said that Palestinians in that they can't vote. Like, you know, obviously Palestinian citizens of Israel can vote in Israeli elections, but uh, in the West Bank and Gaza that are functionally controlled by Israel, they cannot vote for the the government and the military that controls their lives. And just like reading that one line produced that experience for her. You know, I think a lot of people relate to Peter's writing in this way. Um, so like, I, I guess I would just say that like the bar doesn't necessarily need to be so high as like standing at the Kalandia checkpoint or like being in Hebron, seeing it for yourself. Like, I think that there are things that can break through that are surprising. Um, you know, I had another person talk to me about seeing like a college roommate with like a Palestinian flag, like on her keychain, who was Palestinian and realizing like, oh, that's not a hostile symbol to me. Like that's like, uh, that's a flag for, that represents a group of people, you know? Um, and then that like sent things sort of, it's so small, but it like sent things kind of cascading. So I, you know, I, I guess I just don't want to like overestimate the bar. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's, I think there's a good point in that, uh, Ariel. I do think the images matter. I mean, I think about my own like initial break out of like Zionist, uh, indoctrination was that it wasn't just the image partially it was the images of operation castellette in 2008 2009 but it wasn't as much it was the images combined with the feeling that i had no one that i could talk to that would give me the straight up answer for what was happening that um and at that point it was like pretty normal i was i was still mostly like in the day school community and like it you know it was normal to hear things like oh the only way to deal with hamas is to like turn Gaza into a parking lot, but like, that was a thing that people were, were saying. And that, you know, me at the time in 2008, 2009, I was, you know, 14. And like, that wasn't a compelling for a curious kid at that age. Like that was not a compelling answer for me. And like, even it wasn't so much hand to hand combat as it was just like beginning to ask questions of people who at first seemed like they knew what they were talking about, but then like, couldn't, couldn't even begin to explain their own positions except in a kind of bloodthirsty way. Um, certainly catalyzed me on like what ended up being obviously like a life's project and journey to, to figure out what this was all about. But so I, I mean, I agree that like small things can be catalysts as well. well yeah. Right. But I want to point out how different the things are we're describing from like being in an argument. Like th these are totally different experiences. And that's, that's the thing. Like I remember, I remember there was an article right after Trump was elected that was something like this Thanksgiving prepare for battle. And it was like how to go about fighting with your racist uncle. And that was going to be at Thanksgiving dinner about, you know, what had just happened uh, in the election. And I remember seeing that just being like, that seems just insane to me <laughs> to like go into that, to a situation like, like that. And I think that like, you know, I mean, there's always questions of, communicative style and whatnot, maybe in some people, you know, I mean, there's lots of love and a sort of heated argument with family. I don't want to deny that. And that the, that can be, you know, the aesthetics of communication can be almost anything. Um, but at the same time, I think like part of what was so was both really powerful for me for do, trying to do that therapeutic work with people, essentially hour after hour after hour, year after year was like, 
the the scene the images and and experiences that touch people were often minor they weren't always they didn't always have to do with the trip that where they saw something often they were a small detail like a punctum of detail that sort of popped the um lanced the uh, the the sort of collection the the mistakes and and misunderstandings that people have about palestinians it was very powerful to sort of like be able to see that people actually can change if they if you can move them into a way of actually having to look and think about those things i like to think that at our best moments we're trying to do that here at jewish currents um at the same time it's also really it's tiring and and sort of like i think difficult you know it's like the conditions all the things that have to line up for someone to be able to read a line of something and recognize just how important it is that Palestinians can't vote. A lot of things have to happen for someone before that. And I think that a lot of those conditions are just, are, are, are enormous and, and have to do, like I was saying before, have to do with sort of large structural realities of our, of our politics and our society that are just not direct, not in our control in the way that what we say in a conversation is in our control. And that, and that's the part of, of like about Israel Palestine that I think you know, it does directly point to conversations and political struggles that are much larger than what's happening to people in Israel-Palestine or here. I mean, it's in many ways. I, I heard Peter once say on a panel that you know, the more he, the more he thinks about it, the more Israel is the right, the American rights utopia. You know, it is the it is the perfect. It is what the American far right wants. And I think the idea that fighting apartheid in Israel does actually have ramifications, not just in stopping the wholesale massacre of Palestinians, which is a lot, which is an important goal in and of itself, but which is actually a, a front line in a global international struggle against like the, the form of capitalism, which we live in, which is, uh, you know, this carceral, uh, you know, insane, racist, violent thing, behemoth that we're, that we're up against. And so I think you know, for me, there's like, I do feel hopeful actually, where to a degree where people, I think as things change, where we're in the sort of like deep interconnectedness of these struggles, the sort of the idea that from Ferguson to Palestine is being set in Congress right now. Um, I think that that interconnectedness is actually a very powerful thing. And I think we'll hope, I hope will provide more and more opportunities for people to connect these dots, which once you've connected them, you wonder why they weren't connected before. Uh, but people have also invested a lot of money in making sure you don't think about it. Um, I think we're probably like getting to what should be the end of this. So I thought maybe we, we've answered like literally a question on our list, sort of. I, um, but I think there's also, you know, if people like this, then maybe we'll do more. I don't know. Um, that's kind of so, so far. That's our deal with this audio stuff. Um, I guess, I guess like one thing I wanted to end on, which I didn't prep you guys for, so I hope it's okay, is just to say maybe like one thing that you're hopeful about right now, uh, which maybe that's not fair and maybe there, maybe there's a way in which that's not appropriate. So if you want to like, if your, if your approach would be just to push back on that, I think that's okay. But I just wonder if that, if there's room for that on this, I don't know. What do people think? I mean, I can just, I have something just immediately. I mean, it's to see Palestinians, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, Palestinians in the West Bank, Palestinians in Gaza and the diaspora Palestinian community all struggling at the same time in a closer form of 
unity that I've ever seen in my adult life, I think is amazing. I mean, it's amazing that that can even happen given the, the ongoing Nakba. And I, that really does make me feel hopeful. I'm like, I can't believe you're still alive, <laughs> you know, um, and fighting. I agree. There's really a lot of hope in that. Um, does anyone else want to offer something? I said, and I, you know, I said my initial hopeful thing early on in this podcast, which is uncharacteristic, that I thought that um, that the fact that white American Jews were not being radicalized in a rightward direction, like white people generally in America, but that were or like white Republicans, but that were behaving a lot more like white liberals was encouraging sort of, I mean, the, we can problematize the white liberal in the next podcast, perhaps. Um, but the other thing that I think is, I do think is hopeful is that I, I must confess, and Ariel, you mentioned this earlier when we were talking, I think the, 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 what the discourse in like liberal spaces feels very different than it did in 2014. In 2014, it felt like, like a hermetically sealed world where you couldn't talk about what was happening and, or you couldn't like that. And now it doesn't seem that way at all. That might be just because, you know, that might just be totally a selection bias in a way that like we work in media and like I'm on, I'm reading public, you know, like things that seem that I would read normally. But I, 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 I do think that has also trickled down though to young people more generally. And I just walking around Brooklyn kind of eavesdropping, on uh, people having conversations on the street, you know, and Brooklyn is obviously not America and is not real life, but I, I'm, I've been surprised at the kinds of conversations among normal people, um, that they're not as bad as I thought they would be. Uh, and that the Palestinian narrative is some, is, it is almost common sense. And in many places it is common sense that the Palestinian narrative, um, is the one that we should be listening to. Um, that is, that, that, that feels like a really big change. And that does make me, I don't know, hopeful is the word, but it's, I want to recognize that things have changed. And that is in large part because of the tireless work from like Palestine solidarity advocates and Palestinians. And maybe things can change. Wow. That's huge. That's huge. Can I think off? <laughs> I think that I, 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 want, I mean, I just want to echo those things. I think seeing the Palestinian resistance and the pretty, like, you know, unified and broad resistance is, is amazing. Um, and I think also seeing support for it from people that maybe I would have previously identified as more liberal or people who were mostly interested in domestic policies, Jew, Jewish and non-Jewish people. Like, you know, I people in my circles who were maybe kind of ambiently pro-Israel and are now speaking out, people who just were not maybe weren't Jewish, but weren't interested in this stuff. And maybe back in 2014 were, you know, kind of put off by like militant social justice re rhetoric because some people felt that way in college. And now they're like, oh no, this makes sense to me. I understand these power dynamics and this is wrong. And I think some of it does come, you know, I think it's also, I think in some ways, the way that a lot of people got politicized around the Black Lives Matter uprising last summer, um, and people are able to kind of connect the dots to what's going on now in Israel and are able to carry that forward and have this more international lens about Palestine. And I think that's really, that's really cool. And it does make me hopeful. Um, I think 
one thing perhaps that I don't think this really makes me hopeful actually, but it kind of gives me, I think some weird, a weird form of consolation, which is just like one thing I want to talk about real quick. Cause just like one thing I think that's really hard in all of this stuff is that like, I don't know, it sucks to see, to like kind of reckon with, you know, as Jacob would like put it, you know, like this decay of the Jewish, you know, community into Zionism in this way to reckon with the fact that things being done in Israel are being done specifically around this, like, you know, Jewish ethno-nationalism to reckon with the ways in which, you know, American Jewish interests are so embedded in supporting it. Um, and I, I think that I can't always offer a lot of consolation about that, but I think that's something that is a useful framework for me to, for this is that rather, you know, I think I grew up kind of thinking of Jews as in some way, this sort of like exceptional moral way, because my Jewish education is very focused on like social justice. And, you know, I had this idea of like, you know, this is a very like kind of tikkun olam inflected idea about Judaism. And so it was very hard for me to reckon with a lot of the you know ways in which Judaism in certain contexts, political Judaism, Zionism could be destructive. Um, and so to, to zoom out and say, oh yeah, like, you know, actually Jewish people are simply humans and humans when they have ethno nation states are become, you know, bloodthirsty, become, you know, like politically, uh, you know, become oppressive are dehumanizing. Um, you know, colonialism is a bloodthirsty and oppressive process, no matter who does it, even if it's Jews. And I actually think that that is a, you know, in my opinion, you feel liberated by that. No, I almost, I mean, I, in some ways, I think the same, it's the myth of Zionism is this idea that Jews are somehow going to be a be better at having a state or going to be a light on the nations. And it's honestly really sad. Like if you like, I don't know, in the book, a book, really good book called Where the Jews Aren't by Masha Gessen, that's like a lot about kind of um, Jews in the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, sort of um, before the Holocaust and um, a little kind of it talks it quotes the Jewish historian Simon Dubnow and he has this quote where he's sort of writing and he's like oh yeah if the Jews ever have a state and this is like pre-Zionism you know kind of dealing with like anti-semitism and this sense of not having anywhere to go but like oh if the Jews I don't think the Jewish state will ever happen but if it does it will like definitely be the most beautiful and most moral state and you know like it will never be like these other nation states and you know reading that now is like very emotional and given what has happened and it makes me sad and it's like a very understandable also impulse to think about and also that we can kind of say okay, we know with our politics, that's, that, that's not how states work. That's not how ethno nation states work, you know? And so I think like, in some ways, and to say that Jews are able to be different than other humans in that context is to reinforce the same kind of, you know, ethno superiority notions that underlie Zionism. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's, it's, I think it's a consolation in a sense. Um, because yeah, um, and it, it's not a justification. It's just yeah. a way to look at it that says, oh, yeah, our politics are correct. These political political formations are damaging and violent. And that's true no matter who is driving those formations. Yeah, I, I want to lift up something that um, Inez Abdel Razak said in Jewish Currents recently um, about basically Israel-Palestine as like a, um, as an experimental space for how to transcend the nation state. And I think that that is 
um, very exciting, um, even if it does feel utopian, but something will have to happen. Um, so why not something else? <laughs> um, I think it would be sort of poetic for like a kind of late colonial state, a too late colonial state to sort of innovate out of the form entirely. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I echo what everybody says about all these hopeful things. I mean, not to undercut just all of the stuff that is not hopeful. And I know that everyone's getting a lot of that, uh, out of frame. Um, but I will say that for me, it's been impossible to imagine any kind of change at all. I mean, like I think with Jewish currents, we often run into the problem of being like, how do we even report on this anymore? It's just the same thing over and over again. And everything is part of the same thing. And I think that this is no exception. And even in the sense that it's magnified, um, but there are significant ways in which that everyone here has brought up in which we're starting to see a change of some kind. Um, and I think that there's no way to look at that and be like, that's, and to discount it. Um, you know, if there's any way that, if there's anything we know about how things end, it's that they sort of end in some way unexpectedly. Like everybody thought apartheid was just going to be around forever. And, you know, then suddenly something happened and it, it changed or the Berlin wall or, you know, fall of the USSR or whatever. Um, I think it's a reminder that like things can happen, even things that look bad on their face, um, that, that some kind of change is, is possible. So. Can't get enough Jewish currents? Keep in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And visit jewishcurrents.org to subscribe and see our latest. A very special thanks to Nathan Salzberg for providing us with the music from his album Landwerk No. 2, and to Santiago Elu Cantero for producing this segment. Thanks for listening. That's all from us.